0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Just that headline of, you know, Kenton climbs Everest for the 16th time. I mean, ultimately, who cares? In my, in my, in my mind, records have no, no place on mountains, you know, other than perhaps a first ascent. Because there's always going to be somebody who's going to beat your record or be the youngest or be the oldest. Well, where does it stop? All all these records are arbitrary and meaningless. The the mountains don't give a monkey's.
2: Welcome to the Adventure Podcast, and this week's episode with Kenton Cool. I've wanted to speak to Kenton on the podcast since I first set it up all those years ago, and we finally made it happen just after he'd made it home from his latest expedition to Everest. Kenton is one of Britain's leading alpine and high-altitude climbers, and he's summited Everest 16 times, and is the first person to climb Nuptse, Everest and Lhotse in a season. Kenton is a big name in the high-altitude climbing world, and I really wanted to try and bring something a little bit different to this conversation, and show you a different side of a man who's been interviewed a lot in the past. And I feel as though with this conversation I've done that. We talk in detail about Kenton's background and how he forged the career he has for himself now. I think we debunk a lot of the preconceptions people have about him, and discuss the battle of ego versus humility, and whether or not he, and I for that matter, have sold out. We also talk about the current state and the future of Everest, and why he feels the need to head out into the bigger hills year on year. Okay, over to Kenton Cool. All right, so I think just to give us some context for those who don't know, if you could introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do and what your life is like.
1: Uh, well, let's start with the first question. What's my, well, The last question, what my life is like, hectic.
2: <laughs> Two
1: young children, uh, a dog, uh, and a house that's far too big for us in the Cotswolds that needs constant mowing and streaming. Uh, But beyond that, uh, I'm Kenton cool. Uh, I'm a professional mountain guide uh, uh, with a speciality in the high Himalayas. So I find myself running around uh nepal and pakistan uh, on a yearly basis uh predominantly these days with uh, with clients but not exclusively uh, and when i'm not doing that i find myself mowing the lawn
2: <laughs> so how did you end up where you are now i assume you weren't always a high altitude mountaineer or had ambitions to be maybe
1: no i mean it's uh i think like like most people would fall into things uh i mean baz Luhrmann's song. Uh, always wear sunscreen. You know, he you know, mentions in there that he knows you know, some of the most successful people that he knows didn't know what they wanted to be when they were 28, uh, and I certainly didn't know what I wanted to be age 28. Uh, I was working back then on building sites, uh, industrial rope to access, so hanging off the side of buildings, uh, predominantly to feed the habit of of climbing, uh, specifically expedition climbing. Uh, um, and it was only we were uh, working on a job in Barry Island, no less, South Wales, the salubrious surroundings of Barry. Uh, and I was working with the late, great Jules Cartwright, who happened to be putting in a, um, an application to the, uh, to the British Mountain Guides to begin his training and assessment. And uh, he just happened to say over a beer one night, wouldn't it be fun if we did it together? Uh, And that was the first time that I legitimately thought uh, about a potential career as a mountain guide. Until then, I mean, I don't quite know what you would call it, like an amateur climber, somebody who just climbed for fun. expeditions were exactly that. It was something that I did because um, I found sanctuary there. Uh, And it it, it ultimately was fun. When I used to live in Sheffield, I was the yes man. People used to say... Uh, you know, do you want to come on this expedition? It was yes. And then I would go away and find a way of funding it uh, because pretty much all my expeditions were self-funded. Um, and, um, yeah, it would have been 2003, maybe, uh, two, uh, that Jules and I put in an application to the guides. Uh, and in reality, uh, Matt haven't really looked back since, you know, qualified as a full mountain guide 2006. Uh, and then, God, that's what uh 10 was that 16 years ago jesus uh and then it pretty much worked as a mountain guide or keynote speaker or something like that ever since um and hung up my my irata uh boots so to speak
2: and so what was your
1: no more window cleaning
2: (laughs) apart from at home
1: uh, we actually get somebody in to do the window cleaning here, and it's hilarious because every time they finish, I'm looking at it, going, "Yeah, yeah, they've not scrimmed that, uh, uh, that properly." <laughs> I did a lot of window cleaning.
2: <laughs> so, what was what was your access point to climbing and expeditions then in the early days? I think accessibility is a really interesting topic these days around how we fall into it.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I, I, was, I was doing a. Um, a late night radio interview, actually last night, uh, with um, Paul Ross uh, for TalkSport, and, and he asked a, a, a really similar question. And yeah, I, I think the access point originally, because because I grew up in Slough, uh, and I don't know if you know Slough particularly well. Uh, famous for the poem, "Come friendly bombs, come rain on Slough." Um, not much going for it. People would normally pass it on the M4 on the way to Heathrow Airport, but that's that's where I was born pretty pretty damn flat so no real access to the mountains or to climbing but i had access to the boy scouts Uh, and in fact my father was a boy scout leader um and we actually lived despite the fact we lived in slough or just outside slough inside the m25 we lived in a corner of a farm field in a small wooden bungalow no mains drainage no central heating uh the roof leaked uh you know wood burning stove to heat the water um, and, and this is, you know, essentially almost in London. And, and between the Boy Scouts and living basically on a farm, it gave me access to the out, to the outdoors. Uh, it gave me access to roam about in the woods in, in the summertime. Uh, it gave me access to go and build dens and fall out of trees uh, and to try to get caught by the farmer while playing in his sort of hay barn. Uh, and all these things that we had when we were growing up. Uh, and... I think climbing sort of became a natural extension of being in the outdoors. Uh, I, I used to love hiking up and down you know, small mountains on Boy Scout camp. Uh, and then one day, I remember really vividly, uh, and I, so, I feel so privileged to have got to know him a little bit when I lived in Sheffield. We, uh, we finished a, a two-day sort of mini expedition. Uh, by now, I'm an adventure scout, so I'm, what, 17, 18 and we finished the two-day little expedition. And unbeknown to me, we walked past Raven's Tour, you know, the, the famous sports climbing mecca of the Peak District. Um, this will divide the listeners. You know, honestly... Um, compared with some of the crags in France, where you look at Ravens Tour and you think, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is the bastion of hard sports climbing in the a glued-together lump of rock that's less than 50 metres high. But we won't go there right now. But, but unbeknownst to me, we, we walked literally past the base, and we are waiting to be picked up in a minibus uh, in some local nearby village. And I wandered into the local newsagents and was just sort of leafing through some of the magazines. And I picked up, I think it was High magazine, and at the time, I knew nothing about climbing. And the breaking news was that Ben, Ben Moon, arguably the world's best rock climber at the time, had just climbed Hubble, which, as we all know, was deemed the hardest sports climb, at least, in the world at the time. And it was at Ravens Tour. Uh, and we literally walked past it, uh, unbeknown to me. And the picture of Ben... You know, on you know, he used to had like on. He had his long dreadlocks back then. Probably had an earring, and it just looked so cool compared with you now the big rucksack and the the um, uh, carry mat that's in the, the uh, mandatory black bin bag to keep it dry and all that sort of stuff. And I was looking at my rucksack and then looking at these pictures in High Magazine of climbers doing their stuff, and I just thought, I'm doing something wrong here. Yeah, you know, I, I I need to find out a little bit more about this climbing business. Um, and it kind of took off from there. You know, my, my, my interest had been piqued. Uh, and my nearest climbing wall growing up was at Uxbridge, Brunel University, which at the time was was quite a um, modern uh, climbing wall. You know, you look at it now, you think, oh, my God, it's like antiquate. Uh And that was it, really. That and a school friend, Andy Fowkes, um, who could drive. Uh, and that was a big access point. Uh, Andy, his mum's Vauxhall Astra SR, SRI, was it? Like, there's some sort of turbocharged. Then we got stopped by the police once going off to the crag late one night. They thought we had stolen the car. Uh, and, and, and that was it. You know, we started going down to places like Swanage climbing uh, up to the Peak District. Um, I think my first ever gritstone route uh, was at, is Bellamy, like a VS, Layback VS4C or something like that, uh, and I just fell in love with the sport and, 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 and what it gave from its physical attributes to its mental strength that you needed. Uh, you were very much on your own, but part of a team at the same time, which for me was quite a revelation. Uh, I'd come from a hockey background where you know you could play the best game you ever played and still be on the losing side, and all of a sudden climbing it was very much down to you as the individual. But at the same time, you have that umbilical cord to your teammate, that rope. And yeah, I just fell in love with it. I I, I, almost instantaneously, you know, the combination of the outdoors, the adventure, the, um, the community, physical, mental attributes. For me, it was the perfect storm.
2: Amazing. And then how did you get into the expedition world apart from just being a yes man? Or was it that?
1: (laughs) Um, well, you know, when I was growing up or when I got into climbing, there was no internet. Uh, and it was all books. And, you know, the books were by the likes of Doug Scott, um, Chris Bonington, um, and, you know, the, the, the cohort that became collectively known as the Bonington Boys. And these books were relatively easy to come by, either jumble sales at the, you know, scout jumble sale. Uh, my first climbing book was Everest the Hard Way and the 1975 Cent of the Southwest Face of Everest by Chris Bonington. Uh, And and these guys were very much Himalayan-based. And and for me, this seemed to be the the logical progression from, like, rock climbing. Uh, I went to the Alps, having just finished my A-levels. And then I think within two years, I was busy organizing an expedition to Pakistan. And and for me, this was the logical progression. Uh, Whereas nowadays, I think, you know, people might get into rock climbing, but then you know, head towards bouldering perhaps or, you know, head off in a, you know, whatever direction they're going to head off in. But, you know, for me, it, it, it was the Himalayas. You know, I wanted to beat Doug Scott. I wanted to to live through the eyes of Chris Bonington or Dougal Haston or Mick Burke or whoever, you know, Alex McIntyre, um, Kurtiker, Kukutska. You know, they, they, these were the huge names uh, in the 70s, 80s and, you know, into the 90s. Uh, and I, I, wanted to emulate, oh, I thought I wanted to emulate them. Um, and yeah, that, that, that started a career out in the Himalayas.
2: But that's an interesting self-correction around you wanted to, or you, maybe you thought you did what, what happened or what changed and why self-correct?
1: Uh, cause it's easy to say that's what I wanted to be. Um, but it, but it's easy to be seduced by what you think people around you want you to be, um, and after many many years of expeditions, and when I say many years, you know, we're talking uh, a decade, fifteen years worth of expeditions of, of you know, for me, quite hard expeditions. Uh, you know, no fixed ropes. You know, we weren't climbing big peaks, so there was no oxygen, but no Sherpa support. You know, carrying massive rucksacks, doing it all on a shoestring because we had no sort of financial support as such. Um, it kind of reached a crescendo in two thousand and three on on Annapurna 3, where we, myself, Ian Parnell, John Barker put up quite a hard new route uh, on a, you know, big hill, 7,500 metres. And, yeah, we totally pushed the envelope. And, we, you know, we became one of these characters that I always wanted to, to emulate, you know, the Doug Scotts, And, yeah, but the level of suffering and, you know, loss that these sort of expeditions bring is, is unprecedented. And, you know, until you've been there and experienced it, you don't really realise how zapping, both physically and mentally, they are. And I think in 2003, I kind of realised that, actually, this probably wasn't what I wanted. And it took me, you know, 12, 15 years to find this out. You know, the level of suffering just wasn't for me. And finally being honest with myself and it was actually only in lockdown recently i was, I was interviewing from my own podcast uh core conversations interviewing um joe simpson and joe you know joe said the same thing he said i thought i wanted to be one of these people but in reality i didn't and this really struck a chord with me only a couple of years ago and god christ you know, that that was me now, yes, I enjoyed all the expeditions. I did enjoy the suffering, but then it just got so much, and the attrition rate with friends just mounted and mounted and mounted and just got to a stage where it's like, actually, yeah, I've had enough of this. Um, whereas the likes of Doug Scott, Chris Bonneton, you know, Kurticure, they they never seem to get tired of it. Um, and, yeah, perhaps I just wasn't quite as mentally or physically strong as those boys
2: were well i don't know it's interesting because uh, to what extent do you think you just you achieved so much in those 15 years of expeditions that i mean there's that cheesy prince line was he say he said um obviously metaphorically i've been to the top of the mountain man there's nothing there <laughs> you know you did it you've done it you know you could carry on doing it forever but like you say you pushed the envelope and I, I say this sort of with my tongue in my cheek but what was there left to do
1: yeah, I mean, I mean, interestingly enough, it wasn't long after 2003 that I you know, first met my wife. Um, so I met her when I was living in Chamonix. So we, we first uh, came into contact, you know, 2006. Yeah, I, I remember quite vividly being with, um, he writes about it in his book, actually, Nick Bullock. I went to India with Bullock in 2007, and we were on Clanker, uh, trying the North Face of Clanker together. And yeah, you know, it was hideous snow, and and I never liked climbing steep, unconsolidated snow. At the best of times, <laughs> it was always you no. Know, Bullock, being the bold climber that, that he ever was, was like sort of lapping it up and climbing near vertical snow. And I was just thinking, Jesus Christ, this is super dangerous. Um, and I just remember saying to him, you know, I think you picked the wrong partner. Because I think ultimately, yeah, yes, of course I would follow him where, wherever he went, but my heart perhaps wasn't fully into it by this stage. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just an interesting period of my life, and, and it's only more recently, you know, I, I was filling in a little questionnaire the other day, you know, what would you tell your teenage self? And I think the best thing you can tell yourself is just be you, you know, be the person that you want to be. You know, you don't have to conform with those around you, you don't have to say what others think you should say, or conduct yourself in ways that others think you should conduct yourself. You can, you know, you can be the free spirit that you want to be, and nobody's really gonna uh, is gonna care ultimately. Uh, and I kind of found myself in this niche where people, yeah, you know, because you know, back in the early 2000s, with all the trips to Alaska and things like that, you know, we were in the media, Parnell and myself. Yeah, we were on front covers of magazines, and that can be self-perpetuating. You can back yourself into a corner whereby you think you've got to keep that up. Whereas ultimately, you know, when you take a step back from that, it doesn't matter. And, and, and that, that learning came to me quite late. Uh, and I'm not saying I would have backed out of expeditions earlier, because I was loving doing what I was doing. Yeah, they were hard work and stressful, but I was loving it. And I was getting enjoyment and fun out of it. But at the same time, as we said, I was the yes man. People keep asking me on these expeditions. And I couldn't say no for fear of missing out, for fear of what people might think. Whereas now I'm like, I'm my own person. I do my own thing. Um, and if people don't agree with that, now as long as it's not damaging anybody or hurting anybody, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's certainly not damaging me. Um and, yeah, and, and that, that was a learning that came quite late. And, as I said, it was Joe Simpson, uh, you know, the famous Touching the Void author, who uh, who mentioned it. I'm like, huh, that really resonates. And that, that sort of put to bed a skeleton that I'd been carrying for quite a long time.
2: And so <clears throat> um, it was the Joe moment that, realized, that helped you realise that, or it was that summit with Ian? Because I, I, it, it's... I guess of what I really want to know is when you had that realisation that moment of maybe I don't want to do this anymore, what did you want to do instead or didn't you know?
1: I, I don't think I really knew. Uh, I mean, I'm one of these people that it seems to have sailed through life without any real sort of goal or intention. You know, throughout my 20s, all I did was climb, uh, be it on rock or you know, the, the, the expeditions, which, you know, as we've sort of mentioned, really piqued my interest. Um and yeah, there, there's no set sort of vision. I mean, I have got friends now who you know left university and would do a MBA in something or get into finance or knew they wanted to be a city trader or do this or did that. I had really no idea other than the fact that I loved the community that was or is the climbing mountaineering community. Uh, and, and 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 that's fabulous. And you know, my vision was I just wanted to be part of that. So the industrial rope taxes, working on building sites. It it, it really was a means to an end without any real clear vision. And and expeditions were the same. I sort of bounced from expedition to expedition, often doing two, three, four in a year, uh, just following the seasons around the world, possibly because I didn't have an end goal that I was heading towards. I was enjoying the journey. I was enjoying the ride. Um, And looking back on it, I I don't think I would really – change it for, for for anything it was you know certainly helped f- formulate me into the person that i am today you know with and without the flaws that i i carry with me um and yeah i've got very strong memories of of that part of my life and, and so, upon good memories i should say
2: so what did you do well in terms of once you decided to kind of stop living that life and following the seasons and chasing those, you know, high end as opposed to high top peaks. What did you do?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, that's pretty much when Jules mentioned about becoming a mountain guide. Uh, And all of a sudden uh, I found a, I wouldn't say a calling because I never had the vision of becoming a guide. I always thought that, you know, working in a professional manner would somehow impact my own enjoyment of what I, what i wanted to do in the mountains whereas in reality it turned not immediately um but certainly today uh, i'm i'm one of these people that you know i i can glean as much enjoyment walking up say Mole shabbard in uh, north wales as i would climb in everest or climbing in southern spain or you know, rock climbing at Pembroke. I just love being in the outdoors and sharing experiences with people. And I think if I was truly honest with myself, that was one of the driving forces, you know, right throughout my climbing career. I just, just enjoyed that um, that moment of watching a sunset with somebody and, and sharing that experience. You know, having you know, fought your way up a, a route in Pembroke or, you know, watching the sunrise on Everest. Because, again, you're shoulder to shoulder with somebody. You, you're there with a friend. And although it might be a you know, nowadays it's a commercial uh, thing, you know, I'm working as a mountain guide and I've got a client with me. But the way that I work in a very bespoke manner, I, I managed to transcend quite quickly the client guide relationship, and we become friends. Most of my clients are are, are friends of mine. Uh, so to be able to share those experiences are are, are fabulous. So embarking on the, on the mountain guide side of things i mean people say you know what was it you know was it learning to be a guide and no it was none of that you know it was just you know back then i i just wanted to be part of the gang you know and and a lot of my close friends pete benson um you know jules cartwright uh guy willett they 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 all signed up to the the mountain guides i'm like well you know rich cross was a couple of years before me john bracy just behind me al pow who was a mentor through my early himalayan climbing um, you know, he was just just qualifying when I embarked on the guides, and yeah, you know, I, I, I wanted to, be, to to remain part of that community. So it, it seemed to be a very fairly obvious path once somebody had opened the door for me. Um, and yeah, the, the training and assessment it always takes longer than you think. It's more expensive than you think. Uh, there were hiccups along the way I was somewhat non-conformist. I remember Jules taking me to one side one day and just said no you've got a name for yourself just keep your head down uh, get through the hoops and once you're qualified you can do, you know we can do whatever we want to do um And that again was a, was a learning uh, experience you know I was always pushing back against the authority I just wanted to do my own thing naively perhaps thought I was better um, than some of these people in reality of course I wasn't. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, you know, that, that's what it morphed into. Um, and, you know, nowadays, you know, just back from Everest for the 16th time uh, and, and arguably as enjoyable as going to Clanker with Nick Bullock or Annapurna 3 with Parnell or or climbing in Alaska, being in the mountains is, is, it helps me reset. It keeps me grounded. It keeps me humble. Um, and, it's, and it's fabulous, absolutely fabulous.
2: And with the guiding stuff, I mean, I think it's changed so much, I think, since you did it and, you know, it wasn't, it was, well, maybe wrong to say it was just getting established, but I think it was becoming more of a, a natural route for people of your kind of calibre to take. Um, but getting into the big mountains, you know, the 8,000s plus, that's, it's a specific niche, isn't it? And a specific genre. And there isn't room for many at that table. How did you access that area? And was it intentional?
1: Uh, it wasn't intentional to start with. It, it became intentional. I mean, I was given the opportunity to go to Everest on the back of Annapurna 3. And I was living in Sheffield at the time, and Jagged Globe took quite a punt with me. I'd never been to an 8,000-meter peak, uh, and they asked me to lead an expedition to Everest. Um, and, you know, I'd never worked with Sherpa teams before. I never used auction delivery systems. And to a certain extent, I was mentored by quite a colorful character called Henry Todd who was you know, quite a bit older than me, had been running Everest expeditions for a long time. And Jagged Globe had this sort of strange, connective relationship with Henry. And Henry very much took me under his wing. And so we explained the nuances of working on big mountains such as this. Uh, and, and to be honest, you know, I, I loved it. I, I loved the learning curve. Uh, I adore, well, I, I adored and still adore working with uh, my Sherpa friends and you know i I, and i and i love the himalayas i'd already fallen in love with the people of the himalayas by this stage uh and you know i just saw this opportunity to work on these big mountains the pay was okay um and as i started to understand the nuances of leadership on these big mountains and how you can inspire people and how you can keep people motivated and interpreting the weather, and, and, and just making sure that, that everything was in the right place at the right time to, to execute safely on, on these big mountains. You know, I, I really enjoyed the challenge, and I came back from that first expedition and said to Jaggy Globe, yeah, yeah, I'll go back again, yeah, and again, and then I realized that I could run my own trips. And there was this great cohort at the time. Uh, I actually wrote a piece for a magazine, it was never published, called Young Guns on Everest. Because I I came into the Everest scene and there was a, as I mentioned, a a cohort of us, uh, Dave Morton, uh, Luis Benitez, uh, Dave Hahn, who was a bit older than us, but but he was there, Tucker. And we were all super similar, but from different walks of life and different uh, parts of the world, all coming together and working on Everest. Uh, And and it was beautiful. Uh, There was a community that I, I had in Sheffield. It was a community that I had in Chamonix because by now I, I was living out in France working as a mountain guide. Um, and yeah, for me, it was a, natural, a, a um, natural extension. I mean, you've got to remember as well that, and this really surprises people. Uh, back in 96, I had a really bad climbing accident and smashed, smashed both by calcaneum, bilateral calcaneum fracture. Uh, it was a really serious injury. And I, I walk with a pretty bad limp even today. Uh, and for many people, this, this was considered to be a, a career stopper. You know, I was told I'd never climb again, wouldn't walk without a stick, wouldn't be able to run, wouldn't be able to walk rough, rough ground and all this sort of business. And, you know, I was already working in the European Alps at this stage and, and my body was suffering from all the ups and downs through summer alpine guiding. You know, it was really brutal on the body. And this is, this is going to surprise the audience. But working on Everest, physically, I found a lot easier on my body. Uh, and I found I wasn't enduring the same amount of pain and stiffness and lower back pain and everything which was related to my injury. Uh, so put that into, into the equation of earning half-decent money, doing something which I loved, going high, working with Sherpa Crews, you know, getting to go out to the Himalayas and, and hang in places like Nepal or India, you know, and subsequently Bhutan and Pakistan, um, it was like a dream come true. You know, th- this is what I always wanted to do. And, and for me, it was pretty obvious that there was a niche. You know, not many guides wanted to go back time and time again. And then adding to the equation that I was an IFMGA mountain guide, you know, there were no other fully qualified guides working on everest because everybody you know was only money ski ski guiding or or working in the european alps and now i found this niche on everest and started to exploit it and then began progressively to get a name for myself and now i find myself where i am today yeah i've got a website and things like that but i don't advertise anywhere and the clients find me and that's because i exploited this niche on everest and Whatever we think about the mountain it's always going to hold public interest because it's the highest point on the planet look at its history you know the first ascent and you know the news have broken on the Queen's coronation you know look at the romantic myth of you know did they or didn't they in 1924 get to the top you know even Coubertin, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, the modern you know, modern founding father of the of the modern day Olympics he handed out gold medals. To the 1922 everest uh, team and they didn't get to the top but he handed out his medals using the the terminology these medals are being uh, awarded for outstanding feats of human endeavor on the slopes of mount everest and even today with all the nuances and all the changes in the industry and all the techno- technological advances everest is still everest and people are always interested in Everest and I you know, I exploited this you know, I courted the press a little bit and you know all of a sudden people like Sir Randolph Fines were contacting me to say you know can I climb Everest with you you know Ben Fogle did uh, uh, and, and, and 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 it's all down to just just seeing a gap uh, and doing something that I love and doing it well uh, it took years to, to get to where I am now and yeah it's I, I am somewhat proud of the success that that's brought. Um, although at the same time' it's, it's brought its fair share of condemnation. you know oh yeah, you've sold yourself out, you know you used to climb really hard and now you just jug lines or you know you're sell out because you're, you're part of the industry and commercialism doesn't have a real place in mountains. you know and 10, 15 years ago, that sort of comment might have hurt me, but you, know, as I mentioned earlier, you know the learnings as i get older of you know just do do what feels right for you you know follow your own journey and, and don't let anybody you know tell you that is right or wrong you know, because your journey is going to be different to anybody else's and and that's what i've done and that's where i am and you know that's where that's where i find myself today
2: and i ask this from a place of total kindness but back then when those condemnations were being made and those accusations how did you feel what did it do to you
1: uh yeah, I mean, yeah of course, when when anybody sort of criticizes you, you've got to be a pretty robust individual for that not to need or somewhere. Uh especially, you know, I'm I'm competitive. Uh you know, I was once billed as, you know, one of the finest alpinists of you know the generation to come out of the UK and things like that. Now, whether it's right or wrong, hey, I mean, it, it was published and and then all of a sudden I'm jugging fixed lines on Everest. Um and I'm doing it essentially, you know, for the money, but also, you know, partly for the love of it and to see other people succeed and start with, yeah, it hurt. Uh, and then I just thought, well, actually, you know, why, why does it hurt? It only hurts because I'm letting it hurt me. And ultimately I'm, I'm really happy with what I'm doing. And if I'm happy with with, with what I'm doing, then why should it hurt me? Because, I've had a fantastic career of climbing hard stuff around the world and opening up new routes and being on a front cover of magazines, you know, if that's important and ultimately it, it it's not really important in climbing. You know, what, what's important in climbing is are you happy? Are you having fun? Are you enjoying what you're doing? You know, are you sharing experiences with meaningful people, you know, people that mean stuff to you? And the answer was yes. And when I realized that it, it kind of, it didn't shut a door on that part of my life, but I, I could close out the noise and, and just got on with it. Um yeah, you know, it, it's quite interesting because, yeah, being super transparent. Um, you know, somebody said was I, I was part of the Queen's Jubilee pageant the other day. You know, it was a fantastic experience to you know, sort of drive or be driven up the mile and be part of that fantastic celebration that is so truly British. And somebody sort of tongue in cheek said, Oh yeah, about time you became you know, you got an honor and MB and OB and things like that, and you know I've been put forward for that before, and it's been blocked by the BMC, and it's been blocked because I'm too commercial. You now I'm working in an industry that is deemed to be um, uncouth within the climbing world, and I think it was you know when you hear things such as that, and you're like, well, you know, well, you don't need accolades. You know for being a climber you know we climb because we want to climb but it, you know it did make me think that you know, there was not even a resentment but you know just because it didn't fit in you know i wasn't necessarily living you know in a you know in the gutter and climbing really hard which is how we like to think of of climbers um you know these anarchistic sort of community just doing what they want to do and you know, and i was part of that you know i I came back from India once and got back to Heathrow. Uh, where have we been trying? Oh, we, we've been trying our uh, Spire, spire uh, myself and Parnell and the Bensons and Al Powell. And I'll get back to Heathrow and you now my parents were still living close to Heathrow and I needed something like two pounds on the bus to get home. And, and I didn't have it and I couldn't get it out of the cash machine. And I was like 28 and I had a, a, a haul bag with like thousands of pounds worth of stuff. I mean, there was copperheads in there, there's friends, there's a ledge. there's down equipment and Gore-Tex and you know, thousands of pounds worth of equipment. And I couldn't get two pounds out of my bank account for the bus fare home. And I think that was quite a moment, having to walk around Heathrow Terminal, whatever it was, asking people <laughs> for money to get home. I'm like, well, bloody hell. You know, maybe I need to do something about this. And I think maybe subconsciously that was quite a turning point. Um, and also I, I just thought I need to capitalize, capitalize on what I'm doing and who I am. And, you know, I, I went down that avenue and, you know, if the powers that be think that's too commercial or not, not in, in fitting with um, the values of our sport, well, so be it. But my enjoyment never changed. And I, I love climbing as much now as as I did when I didn't have two pounds in my bank account to get home.
2: And do you, do you feel like you've sold out? No, not at all.
1: No, no, quite the opposite. I just followed my own path. I followed my, my own journey. And I still enjoy rock climbing. I still enjoy ice climbing. Uh, I love being with my friends. I mean, I hooked up with John Bracy this year after doing a little bit of work in Italy. And, you know, albeit... You know, he led the majority of pitches, but, we you know, we put up a new route in Chamonix, um, and I enjoyed that as much as I did slogging up and down Everest. You know, I love every aspect of our sport. I think our sport is unique. I think it's magnificent. And I think if you enjoy it, you can't be a sellout. Just because I'm making money on the back of it. it doesn't make me any more or less worthy than anybody else out there. Um so no, I don't think I'm a sellout. Yeah, I'm I'm commercial. But I'm still heading out to the mountains, both for fun and and you know, and, and as a mountain guide.
2: So no, not at all. Not everyone Do you think wants... I'm a sellout? No, no, and I sort of wondered if you might ask me that. I hate the term. I hate the term. I've I you know it's this isn't about me, but I've been accused of being a sellout by, you know, I did the adventure film climbing stuff. Dirt bagging it around, spending any money we could get to try and make films. And now I get paid by National Geographic and lots of the big brands to go and make films. And they're big commercial projects. We use helicopters. You know, we could talk about carbon at some point, maybe. Might not have time today, but I've been accused of being a sellout. I don't know. Whenever this is, I'm being a bit transparent now. I wasn't expecting to be. I'm from Grimsby. I never thought I would do any of this stuff. And so when Nat Geo come knocking and says, do you want to go and direct a series with a famous climber in a cool place? I'm supposed to say no, because I'm going to get accused of being a sellout. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang out at home with my wife. I'm going to open a bottle of wine and I'm going to say, bloody hell, I did it. And I'm going to go.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the, you know the, those who genuinely say you're a sellout are... I mean, nobody ever sits above you. You know, whatever we deem success, and success is a very um, loose term, but if somebody sits above you in terms of success, uh, they're never the ones that generally turn around and criticize you. It's generally those who sit, you know, however you quantify it, or sit underneath you. Uh, who potentially point the finger and say, "Yeah, you know, sell out," or criticize, or you know, you don't live your life by the values that you are used to. You know, you're not living out in the back of the car anymore in Moab, uh, and things like this. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I I I fully agree with you. Um, and yeah, I'm I the same. Me, my father was unemployed for a lot of my childhood. Uh, I remember sticking my shoes back together and putting Blakeys in the back so that I wouldn't wear, wear the heels out and yeah, I'm really proud of. I mean, I, I hate to use it as a measure of success, but you know, I'm relatively financially stable, and that's through hard work and diligence, and predominantly through climbing. Um, and that's allowed me to do the things that I love to do, which is climb. So, yeah, I, I can't see how that is being a sellout because you know, success in whatever form it is, has allowed me to continue climbing. Uh, And I don't think I would have been able to do that. So, you know, certainly not to the level I've done. Uh, If I kept, you know, returning from expeditions with £2 to my name, because at some stage I always wanted to have children. You know, even when I was young, I wanted to have a family. And as soon as you get a family, then you have uh, commitments to somebody other than yourself. And let's face it, climbing is about the most selfish thing on the planet, uh, you get you, you have commitment to somebody else, and, and life gets very serious, uh, and that needs to be whether we like it or not, to a certain extent financed. And climbing finances my family, uh, and I'm very proud of that. Um, and not only does it finance a family, it allows me to continue to climb. Uh, so, yeah, it's just you know I, I chose a different path to perhaps others in the same way that you have
2: yeah and i I do i really want to come on to the ethics and the changing mountain in a second but i think you know to be slightly analytical i mean i have the privilege of being sat with you talking about this and i can see you and the you know two things (coughs) that you said that i think work perfectly in harmony with each other or the way that you said them one is saying i reached a point where i didn't want to do this anymore in terms of the hard top end you know you did it for a long time no one can take that away from you but then also the way that you spoke about Everest and guiding and the returns, you know, I could see the smiles and they weren't there. They weren't conscious. You know, I saw the way you spoke passionately and eloquently about it. And regardless of what our friends, your friends, my friends think about Everest and the commercial side of it, you, it seems to me, you still love walking up that mountain with people after all this time.
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I recorded a little... Um... Uh, I have a tagline, hell yeah, and I recorded a little hell yeah when we got back down to um, the, the sort of top part of the Western Coombs. So, so basically by the time you come off of Everest and get back down to this point, you're pretty much home and dry. You're out the death zone. So. And I, I published this on social media, on uh, Instagram or something the other day, and a number of people got in contact with me and just said, my goodness, your passion for what you do is showing through. Um, now, part of that is emotional release because, you know, I'm professionally leading somebody into arguably one of the most dangerous environments in the world and there's no rescue on Everest. But 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 the passion is is there still. You know, I, I love Everest. Um, yeah, and, you and know, you, you could overlay, you know, pretty much any mountain. You know, it could be Makalu, it could be Manaslu, it could be troy It doesn't need to be a big mountain either. You know, if you see me working in the European Alps, I love that just as much, uh, you know. Ice climbing in in Italy with a client—does it get much better than that? You know, you're out there with a friend slash client. You got great drink great coffee. You have a nice beer at the end of the day. You get to climb some fantastic ice, hopefully under blue sky, um, and you're getting paid for it. Uh, where's the sellout in that? I um, mean, <laughs> that's a dream. You know, it's a dream ticket right there. Oh, hang on, no, no, I'm being paid for it. But, but it's... I'm elevating somebody else's experience. And and, and and yeah, you know, introducing to other people to the marvellous sport that is, that is mountaineering. You know, if I was a millionaire, I'd possibly do it for free. But yeah, it's, you know, I love it. You know, I, I love every form of our magnificent sport. It's, it's bloody marvellous. We're so lucky to be part of it.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting because I do think, I think a lot, I think this podcast has totally changed how I think about, well, most things, but particularly the outdoors and adventure. And, realising how we access, as in, it's almost like permission. You know, where do we get our permission to go and enjoy these spaces and do these things? And maybe, you know, some remote ascent by some unknown climber somewhere is inspiring to you and I, but most people don't see that because it doesn't hit the mainstream. Whereas this generation of Boy Scouts, Girl Guides, everybody, young people seeing you do Everest, it gets on the telly and they watch it and go, bloody hell, I'd like to climb that. I'd like to go and become a climber. That's an access point. You know, I shouldn't talk about him when he's not here. I'd love to interview him one day, but people love to knock Bear grills. And <laughs> Andy Kirkpatrick has that thing around, you know, the, the worst thing about Bear is he's such a nice guy um, because he's so difficult to hate. But how many people has he inspired to go outside and get involved uh, in the outdoors? It's endless.
1: No, absolutely endless. You know, and I've met Bear just twice. I mean, our careers have, have done. Yeah, they've crossed numerous times. I've spoken on, the, you know, spoken to him on the phone many years ago after I got misquoted in in a paper once, and I just I rung him up. I was Henry Todd knows him quite well, and Henry gave me his number and I actually rang him up on a sat phone from Everest to apologise uh, about this newspaper article. And I met him uh, literally only two times, both times quite recently. In fact, once on Sunday, uh, and you know, and and Andy's absolutely right. He is uh, just a beautiful human being. Now, and whether you think he's fraudulent or not, and whether you think he's you know staying in five-star hotels when he's meant to be rough in it, it's neither here nor there. He has inspired a whole generation, my son included, into getting out into the outdoors and to climb trees and to fall out of trees and to get covered in mud and, and to and to pretend to be bare, rolling in and out of ditches and what that's a role model right there. Yeah, because you know the devices that we have around us are our addiction to being connected through screens—it's alive and kicking—and uh, it's affecting the whole, I think, of the next generation. So to get people like Bear, um, you know, or numerous other people for that matter, you know, Ed Stafford or you know, whoever it may be, you know, there's nothing wrong with being in the popular media. I think if you are putting across a message such as that—that that being in the outdoors is good for you. Because you only need to look at obesity rates and heart disease and, you know, and, 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 and. And, you know, that's not going anywhere. It really isn't. So the more we can encourage the next generation to get out there um, and to experience the outdoors, which is free, by the way, generally, um, the the better, you know, and and, and the likes of Bear are doing that on steroids far more than, than, than I ever can or, you know, the likes of, you know, and then, you know, or you know anybody in the climbing world you know we, we can bring the bar so much but then you need like the celebrities like bear that can supercharge or turbocharge it and take it to the next level um and I, I think it's fantastic i i really do and Andy's absolutely right he is the nicest guy on the planet
2: but often i mean i you know i should really have a chat with andy about all this because he sits at the other end of the spectrum these days but um I think it's also, you know, we, we talk about our peers and our colleagues and how they view us and how they speak about the things that you or I do or other people do or Bear does. It's, it comes down to authenticity often. And I think people get grumpy, probably justifiably, with the way that the media portray certain individuals whilst, you know, some 7,000 metre peak first ascent isn't making the headlines. Well, it's just that's ego you know, as long as if people are, when I got into the outdoors and started accessing this world of mountaineering, I was inspired by the Bonningtons, the big names, the Bear Grylls, because that's what I could see. And you become more discerning and you get more involved and more well-read. And then you start to go, Oh, who's Nick Bullock? Oh, wow. He's impressive. Bloody hell. You know, and then you read his book and go, Oh God, this is climbing literature, you know, and not everybody needs to go on that journey. If your son is inspired to go outside the resort of Bear Grylls, maybe he'll go the path we did and read a lot and learn a lot. But outside of that, if people are getting outdoors, enjoying the natural world, moving, having adventures, challenging themselves, outside of personal ego and acclaim, I can't see the harm.
1: No, no, I, I'm total agreement, Matt. And you know, there's a couple of points in there. You know, first of all, um, is Ryan Halliday wrote the book Ego is the Enemy. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not a massive book, but it is well worth diving into. Uh, I mean, he references the Stoics quite a lot, and the, you know, there's quite a lot of uh, sort of philosophy in there. But he's absolutely right. I mean, just think about how many times ego gets in the way of rational, logical thought process and decision-making. Um, you know, I can hold, hold my, my, my own hand up. You know, I learned the hard way back in 29th of June, 1996. Now, I was in the Slate Quarries. Um, a week before, I meant to go to the Ogre. We were going to the Ogre because that's where Doug Scott and Chris Bonneton had been. Um, yeah, I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my heroes. And I was in the Slate Quarries. It was one of those damp, mingy, you know, mizzly days. Didn't really want to climb. Just wanted to go to the cafe. Yet my mates were going into the Slate Quarries to climb. And one of them jumped on major head stress on Colossal Wall. Uh, and my ego got in the way. I'm like, well, okay, Rich is doing major head stress. I better do something a bit harder. And so I jumped on major head stress. Um, no, he was doing uh, Ride the Wild Surf, E4. So I jumped on major head stress, E5 next to it. And I broke a hold and I fell off. And I smashed my legs in. Now, that's a direct result of ego. 100% ego taking over. You now, blinding me 100%. So first of all, you know, anybody listening out there, you know, really, you got to check your ego. You've got to really make sure about you know, why am I making this decision? Uh, you know, am I being driven by competitiveness, you know, ego, you know, whatever it is. You know, ego is the enemy. And the other point I wanted to make on, on that little thing that you were saying there is, you know, let's look at Chris Bonington. Now, Chris has been such a professional in our industry. You know, he's such a politician, the utmost respect for him. But arguably one of the most commercial, commercially-minded climbers that the UK's ever produced. You know, just, just look at those big expeditions that he led. You know, look at the film rights on the back of it. Look at the books he's written. You know, look at the sponsorship deals that he used to tie up with Barclays and Berghaus or you know, whoever it may be. You know, he, he's arguably the most commercial out of us all. Admittedly, we're not working in a commercial way in terms of leading clients to the top of mountains like I do, but still very commercial. Uh, it was Doug Scott once said to me, um, you know, it's like a, a double edged sword is it, a wrong metaphor. But you know, on one hand, he said, you know, Kenson, you know, you're the great white hope for British Himalayan climbing. And then in the next sentence, he said, but you're wasting it all leading other people to the top of these mountains. Now, you should break away and do your own stuff again. You know, and if there ever was a compliment you know, followed by a, a put down, that's it right there. But you know, but to a certain extent, Doug was on the coattails of of Chris. Now, Doug was this, this you know white and white individual. He did amazing stuff, and it, you know look at his track record, it's just unprecedented. I mean, it's just amazing. One of the best Himalayan climbers it's ever been. And, and then you know you, you got Chris, who is essentially is a cash machine. I mean, back in nineteen seventy five, Barclays Bank sponsored the Southwest Face trip to Everest to the tune of eighty thousand pounds back in nineteen seventy five. Now, it's a massive expedition. Now, everything was funded, you know, even down to the Levi jeans that they were wearing, um, etc. etc. cetera. And you know, it's co- colossal. Yeah, you know? and you know, nobody turns around and tells Chris that he was commercial and sell out. I mean, it's just a different way of approaching things.
2: But do they, those words from Doug, I mean, that's such an amazing line. Do does that play at you?
1: No, not at all. Yeah, not at all, because you know, I, I didn't have the uh, wherewithal to just follow a, a career in the Himalayas. You know, to, to this day, I'm not sure how Doug managed to finance all his Himalayan stuff. Um, no, was, I'm, I'm very happy with with the, the, the line that I went down. Yeah, you know, I, I, I still do my own stuff. Um, you know, looking at going out to Pakistan later this summer, you know, without any clients uh, I, I reacquainted myself with Pakistan last year with uh, going out to K2 with a client and I realized how much I've missed Pakistan you know, and I've not been there for about 20 odd years um so yeah I'm thinking about going out there this year you know for fun uh so, yeah, I'm, I'm still doing stuff it just means you know I, I mix it with doing stuff with with clients as well um so now I just look at the positives. Yeah, you know, Doug said, you know, I was a great white hope of British Himalayan climbing. Yeah. I- I'll take that one, thank you.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but I think that's again I'm in tangent, mode dear, but that's people just see what they see online. They see the social media and they see the headlines, and it's you know, Kenton climbs Everest for the sixteenth time. They don't see Kenton goes on lovely mountaineering trip with his pals to go and try an ascent that means a lot to him because it doesn't make headlines. But you are doing it,
1: it. It doesn't make headlines, and you know there's a fantastic book that I've actually I've nearly finished it by Ralph Debbelly, this is a Swiss uh, journalist. Um, Stop reading the news, and and short form news is a, a is addictive, um, but but B it only tells a tiny weeny part of the story. It sensationalizes a story, you know, for, for clickbait essentially, and you know it it, it, it could be anywhere. And, yeah, you know, and just that headline of, you know, Kenton climbs Everest for the 16th time. I mean, ultimately, who cares? You know, in, my, in, my, in my mind, records have no no place on mountains, you know, other than perhaps a first ascent. Because there's always going to be somebody who's going to beat your record or be the youngest or be the oldest or, you know, the Norwegian girl you know, looks like she's going to potentially beat Nims' record. And it's just like, you know, well, where does it stop? Now, all, all these records are arbitrary and meaningless. You know, the, the mountains don't give a monkey's. You know, they might mind who did the first ascent on a mountain or who did a hard new route on a mountain. But to climb every 16 times or 17 times or 26 times like Lac let's keep things into perspective. Lac has climbed it. And uh, not laparita Kami Rita. Uh, his brother is Lac He's climbed it 26 times. Um, the number of ascents that I've done is is meaningless. Uh, I, I do it because I love it. Uh, I don't have a single summit certificate, not one. In fact, I think the only summit certificate I've ever got is from Kilimanjaro <laughs> um, <clears throat> because they don't mean anything. <clears throat> they really don't. Um, now, I climb for different reasons. You know, I climb partly for work, uh, but, but but more than anything else, to, to, to be with friends uh, and to, to have those experiences, uh, both good and bad. Um, and to put something in the memory bank. Uh, How many many of us can say that they sort of sat with their legs dangled over top of a climb in Pembroke and watched the sun go down, dreaming of that beer you're going to get in the the pub on the way back to the campsite? Now, that's a real memory. Uh, It doesn't matter if that route is HVS or E-11. The the memory is still the memory, regardless to a certain extent of what the route is. Um, and, And... and, and that's why ultimately I think, well, certainly myself, that, that that's why I do it. You know, it's not, it's not to set records. It's not to get, you know, media lineage or, you know, OBE or MBE or, or, or whatever it may be. It, it, it's, it's what I want to do. And and that's, that's the single most important thing.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting. I think, you know, there aren't many people more qualified to comment from a ground troops perspective, but it, the state of the mountain now I think it would be nice to get your perspective on that and how it's changed since you've been going but also as well as that how you feel about it um, and whether or not your perception of the place has changed
1: uh, I don't think my perceptions change I mean I'm very fond of Everest I owe Everest a lot um, then my whole career there yeah, we go being commercial again you see um, sell out <laughs> <laughs> uh, my whole career has it's been based on that mountain to a certain extent, um, and yeah, 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 the mountain has changed. Now I was first there in 2004, and it's it's changed a lot in terms of technology, weather forecasting. Uh, you can be connected at base camp now. Uh, Sherpa teams have come on in leaps and bounds in terms of how astute they are. Uh, their understanding about what a paying client needs. Um, they're, they're a lot more attentive. Uh, the auction delivery systems have come on in leaps and bounds. But, you know, but arguably more than that, I think our understanding and knowledge of the mountain has improved, uh, the way we approach the mountain, you know, and you know, let's be honest, there's a fixed line basically from base camp all the way to the summit, the you know, way that that line gets fixed and, how it's fixed and the integrity of that line. Um it'd be very easy for people to say, well, you're just bringing down the mountain to the to you know onto its knees so that anybody can climb it. And to a certain extent, that that that's true. Uh there's people on that mountain today who probably wouldn't have summited 10, 15 years ago. Um, and, you know, we we are making that mountain easier to climb from a commercial perspective. But it's still Everest and you've still got to head into the death zone you still got to be one foot in front of the other. And we've all seen the pictures of, you know, a, a paying client with a tiny weenie bag with a Sherpa next to them carrying a humongous bag. You know, and you know, is that right? Is that wrong? I struggle with it. You know, I really do. I, I try to make it uh, a point to carry all my own equipment, my sleeping bag and down suit up and down the mountain and things like that. But, of course, the Sherpas are still carrying you know, putting all the oxygen in place for me. You know, they're putting the fixed camps in place. They're fixing the line for me, so I can like literally do my heart to glory. Um, I'm conflicted by that. I, I really am. But but that is the face of high altitude commercial climbing. Um, and you know, let's face it, Everest has always been commercial. Now look at the 1922 expedition, you know, the first rural expedition to try to climb Everest. There were two people on that uh, expedition. One was Arthur Wakefield, who actually paid to be on that trip. They helped finance that expedition. Now, that doesn't sound that far removed from a commercial expedition today. Look, look, look at the success of the 1953 expedition. Now, they made so much money on the back of you know, the film and the book that the Mount Everest Foundation was formulated on the back of it. You know, I sit on the screening committee. I feel very honoured and privileged to sit on the screening committee. And we hand out you know, <coughs> tens of thousands of pounds each year. And that's just the money made from the investment from 1953 because it was so commercially successful. You know, Everest has always been Commercial but there's ways around it look at look at look at david uh, david Gottley, the the german climber, the north face athlete he climbed it this year no oxygen uh yes he used to fix lines, but he carried all his own equipment you know he didn't really sort of accept any help from from those around him. no sherpas and he summited i think may i forget exactly what day 26 maybe something like that there was no one else around uh from the south summit to, to the main summit and you know it's he had a beautiful day. So you can still go to Everest and have that level of adventure if that's what you're seeking for. At the same time, you, know, you get the paying clients that you could argue don't have the depth of experience who, you know, perhaps you can call them peat baggers, but but everybody's on their own journey. Everybody is doing it for their own reason. And who are we to to, to say one, one is right and one is wrong? Uh, because they're, they've got their own ambitions and you I look back to 1996, being in a hospital bed in um, Wexham Park Hospital, just outside Slough, with my two legs up on crutches or up on, like, metal framework things. Uh, and the consultant came in and, and said to me, yeah, mate, you're not going to climb again. You're not going to walk without a stick. Uh, you probably have specially made shoes. Now, that was crushing an ambition. And it left me um, soul-searching about, you know, what, what I should do next. I mean, he left me in tears. He devastated me because he crushed an ambition. Somebody has an ambition to climb Everest. It may not be in a style that you particularly uh, admire, but you should admire the ambition in the first place. You know, And I don't think we have the right to crush anybody's ambition, be it a nine-year-old boy that wants to be Bear Grylls or a grown-up from you know, making you know, making out India somewhere that wants to climb the world's highest mountain—that that's ambition, and and that's to be celebrated. Um, but Everest is changing; uh, it has changed. Uh, I'm, you know, we mentioned the the young guns on Everest before. I'm the last of them left. Everybody else has hung up the boots, so maybe it's me that needs to change, not the industry. I I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't have the answer. Um, you can use eight liters a minute coming out of an oxygen bottle these days and gone on the days that i used to struggle up there on half a liter a minute <laughs> uh but that's a changing face of it and it's not better it's not worse it's it's change it's development one way or the other and um you can like it or you can you can hate it and and that's the individual's own choice
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com/host.
2: But it's just its own thing. Is I mean, there's a lot of mountains in the world, and there's a lot of room for people to go and climb new ones. I mean, oh
1: my god! Oh yeah, just to stand on the top of Everest and look out, or oh, stand on a top, top of K2. I mean, I couldn't believe being high in a cow corn. Oh my goodness. The number of peaky things that uh, that are in the Karakoram, the majority of which are unclimbed. Uh, if if Everest turned you off, so be it. I understand that. Go, you know, go go seek adventure somewhere else. But also, um, the,
2: yeah. But the the thing about Everest as well is there is no way that it isn't elitist because an ambition to climb Everest directly implies an ambition to stand on the top of the highest peak in the world, and. You know, humans are humans. We're never going to change the fact that Everest attracts people who want to stand on top of the highest point. So, you know, I'm sure there's new route potential on Everest. It's a very big hill. But, I mean, you can almost look at it like Snowdon, you know, Mount Snowdon in (laughs) Wales. I mean, the idea, you know, yes, it's being trashed. It's the one people go and climb because it's the biggest in Wales. It's got a train up it and a cafe on the top, literally. Imagine if somebody said, well, let's rewild Snowdon. I mean, come on, no, people want to go and climb that and they should be allowed to, I think, because they're accessing the natural world as they see it. Um, we could rewild the rest of Wales. You know, for all the people who don't want to climb Everest and don't like the commercialization go, there's other hills. I think the one thing that is contentious and is always worth discussing, and I'm conscious of time, is the the, the rights of the local people and, the, and whether or not they're properly... Um, Catered for, looked after. That's a very colonial way of explaining it. But um, and and the environmental impact. You know, are we cleaning it up enough? Are we not? Do we need to leave it time to heal?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, you know, we we've got to be really careful as as sort of adventure tourists uh, on how we approach these things. Uh, I mean, people have leveled all sorts of things at me. I mean, I'm I'm plant based. Yes, I'm essentially a vegan I'm not a vegan because I wear down clothing and things like that but um you yeah, know and, and one of the reasons why I'm plant-based is is for environmental reasons um, and it's also for animal welfare and things like that um, it's got very little to do with my own personal health uh, but yeah it's the environment and animal welfare but then people can you know, very easily level their finger at me and say well you fly all over the world and yeah you know, and I do uh, uh I'm off to Alaska in a couple of weeks. I've just come back from the pool. You know, I was down in South uh, South Africa uh, with clients back in January. I mean, I, I fly a lot. You know, and that's one of the biggest things in terms of damage in the environment. So as a venture tourists, you know, as, as climbers, we have to be very mindful of the impact that we have, both globally in terms of the environment and also locally. Uh, and that could be you know, footfall in Snowdon or uh, you know, damage to the peat bogs in uh, in the dark peak uh, or, or whatever it may be. Uh, we, we we have to be mindful of that. And, of course, when you get you know, pre-COVID, you know, 60,000 people a year entering the Sagamathin National Park, you know, the Kumbu region, the Everest region, uh, that is going to have an impact, both positive and negative. You know, positive is bringing money to the local economy, the tea houses. You know, the Kumbu is arguably the richest area in the whole of Nepal. Uh, and let's not forget, Nepal is one of the poorest nations in Southeast Asia. The average national salary is about 400 bucks a year. Uh, a lot of people live in poverty, uh, there's, there's disease, there's natural disasters you know, all the time. Nepal is constantly struggling. Um, and then we can move on to the Sherpas. Are are the Sherpas well-treated? I I genuinely like to say yes, certainly sort of our Sherpa team or the Sherpa team that I use, Dorji and Ming Dorji and Khan Dorji and Ang Perba and people like this. You know, they're paid well. I mean, Dorji would come away with, you know, often in excess of $10,000, which doesn't sound like a lot, but $10,000 from every season. Um, But, you know, keep that into perspective. $400 a year is the average salary. He's doing pretty well. You know, he's... His children are educated uh, in Kathmandu and uh, and things like this. He still lives a, a very humble life. His yaks still uh, are in his house or underneath to help sort of heat the upstairs. And you know, he lives in Pangboche and you know, all these things. But you know, and, and this is going to open me up to controversy and things like that. You know, nobody's asking the Sherpas to work on the mountain. You know, the fact that they are there is, is a choice that they, they can make because there are other professions that they can go into i mean they, they could just be a porter they're you know, carrying those bloody huge loads of coca-cola or beer or you know whatever it may be you know up and down the kumbu and things like that you know there could be a subsistence level farmer um you know they, they can get a job in Kathmandu or, or whatever it may be but they have chosen to be a sherpa and generally they are well paid, very well looked after these days. Never, always used to be like that. Uh, they're looked after, and a number of them are becoming superstars, and rightly so, because nobody or very few people would ever climb the big mountains without these guys. Now, even on K2 last year, now the, the reason why our expedition to K2 hung in the balance last year was trying to get the Sherpa team out of Nepal to Pakistan with COVID restrictions. Because we knew commercially we could not climb that mountain without the Sherpa team. Uh, and, and some more entrepreneurial Sherpas are, are realizing that this day you know, these days and you know, starting their own companies. I mean, look at Mingma G or Mingma David. You know, these, you know, these guys have hundreds of thousands of followers. You know, but let's leave, leave Nims out of the equation for now because he's a bit of an anomaly. But, but these guys have hundreds of thousands of followers. They have very successful businesses. Um, and a number of them are now embarking on cleanup operations on the mountain to, to make it you know, cleaner and better and, and, and these sorts of things. And, you know, it's having an impact. Uh, Dower Stephen Sherpa from uh, Asian Trekking. Now, over the last seven, eight, nine years, they, they they have removed tons, tens of tons of junk from Everest. Camp 2, for the first time since I've ever been there, is looking clean south coast still needs a lot of work but base camp is one of the cleanest base camps you're ever going to see um and it has to be because it's in the limelight you know the the industry needs to self-regulate and it you know there's always going to be people out there that are going to pick holes in this argument i think it's doing it pretty bloody well um and there's you know things in place to safeguard the sherpas uh but health and safety you know unfortunately always falls down and it it's unfortunate that generally it's the Sherpas who are in the firing line for icefall collapses or serac falls or avalanches. You know, they go above and beyond. They work bloody hard. When I'm climbing up to the South and Everest on, say, three litres a minute oxygen, the Sherpas generally are climbing without oxygen and carrying a much bigger load than I am. Um, is that fair? No. No, it, it probably isn't. Um, but they are an, an integral part of, of the industry. Um, and hopefully then you know, equality and and you know, a balance would be found somewhere along the lines is improving year on year. Is it perfect? No, but show me something that is perfect.
2: And yeah, I, I, I'm opening myself up to flack a little bit, but I think, you know, we're getting there and we're, we're working on it is an acceptable thing. You know, we're not going to st- It's not going to stop. It's not going to stop today, tomorrow, climbing Everest. So the, the the acknowledgement of what maybe was exploitation or is exploitation or injustice imbalance. if that's being addressed genuinely and people are striving forwards, then that's a good thing. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. It, it, it yeah, has to I mean, change.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I was listening to uh, Dan Carlin's um, Hardcore Histories this morning and, you know, and they're talking about the slave industry. Uh, and, you know, that's been moving forward in a positive way. I mean, we look back on it today and we, we wouldn't see it moving in forward in a positive way. But, you know, it w- It was moving forward in a positive way, you know, almost from its very existence, you know, hundreds of years ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. Uh, but change sometimes comes slowly. And, you know, I do think we are seeing an acceleration on, the working conditions and things like that for the Sherpas. You know, as I said, it's not perfect, but it is moving in the right direction. And that's something to be celebrated. Um, you know, Everest is cleaning up. It's not happening overnight, but that's something to be celebrated. Uh, you know, and it's easy to criticise these places. You know, if I drive the lanes around here in, in the Cotswolds, there's more litter here than there is on Everest, uh, or certainly on the Everest Trail. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's changing, and and I think ultimately probably changing for the better.
2: And it's complicated.
1: Uh, everything's complicated, Matt. you know. We, we know that um, nothing is easy. Nothing, nothing is clear, clean cut. Um, you know, it's easy to to say, well, you know, climbing eight thousand meter peaks has changed. It wasn't like that in my day. You can helicopter from one to the other. You can climb all these fixed ropes and use eight liters a minute oxygen. Now uh, these amazing, it's just different. Yeah, you know, it's still an amazing achievement to climb one eight thousand meter peak. You know, let alone fourteen like Nims did in seven months, or six months, or whatever um, the Norwegian girl wants to do. Yeah, you know, it's just different. You know, it's, it's not the same as Reinhold Messner's day or you know, Jerry Kukutskas' day and people like this. It's you know, it's a changing environment
0: you know, And if the same someone... way that, you
1: know, look at football in nineteen sixty six compared with twenty twenty two. It's the same game, but it's vastly different.
2: Yeah, amazing. Well, I'm very conscious of time, but there's one thing I want to ask you before we wrap up, which is if you do have time, which is um... yeah, yeah no,
1: no rush. Yeah, don't worry. I've got all the time in the world for you, mate. It's taking long <laughs> enough for you to get me on your on your show. <laughs> we might as well maximise it.
2: <laughs> well, no, it's more of a, a personal note in a way. It's um we've talked about this before, but it's about coming home, and I think it's something we don't talk about really. Maybe we talk about it again, mo- amongst sort of pals and contemporaries in pubs, but how do you come home? And to be silly philosophical about it, do you really, if that makes sense? What's the line between, you know, the real world and the mountain world as people see it? Are they different? And do you transition well?
1: I've learned to transi- tra- transition. Um, perhaps that's a question you should ask the family. Um it takes it takes time uh, to decompress, for sure. I, I like to think that expedition life is perhaps a, a fair reflection on what life should be or could be. It's simpler. It's less noisy. Uh, there's less clutter. Much easier to be sort of disconnected in terms of uh, devices and, and and things like that. Um, and by doing so, you become more connected. Um, you know, in, in many ways, you know, I, th- I think it's a shame that you get Wi-Fi at every space camp now. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we we've said all the way through, haven't we? That's development. It's just just a changing environment. You know, how do you come home? You know, ultimately, the expedition, I, I, in my mind, a, a successful expedition is is that everybody comes home, and everybody comes home friends. So uh, that's the first and foremost. You know, to come to come home as friends. But there is that decompression because. The more time I spend in places like Pakistan and and Nepal and, and India, the more I struggle with our society here in the in in the Western world or the developed world, now, our capitalist society, a uh, constant quest for more uh, or faster, our greed for we perhaps want of a better word, for materialistic wealth and possessions, and hey, you know, I'm set up in the children's playroom right now, I'm looking, there's a train set over there, there's a scale electrics there, and I've got a Land Rover parked outside, and I live in a beautiful house in the countryside. If that's not materialistic, then I don't know what is, Um, which makes me totally hypocritical. But at the same time, I like to think I have some form of understanding. I spend time with my Sherpa friends, living with them uh, in their houses, you know, I've been to enough places around the world to, to understand the difference between the haves and the have-nots. Um, and, and, and I do struggle with our society. So certainly when I first come back, I, mean, I remember when we were building this house, because we built this house. And I remember I came back from, um, I don't know where I've been. I've been somewhere. And I come back, and I remember walking around the foundations just thinking, what, what the hell are we doing? You know, we're building a bloody great house for what? You know, is this ego? Yeah, we talked about ego earlier. Is this ego? Is this one-upmanship? Is it competitiveness? Well, we don't need a house this big. We don't need to sink all our money into this. This is this is obscene. This is ugly. About three or four days later, I'm like, I love my house. You know, and I hate to say it, but that's how long it takes sometimes. Just those three or four days to drop, drop back in. I mean, it was a Gordon gecko. Greed is good. Well, what part of greed is good? Now, because you, you don't see greed necessarily in, you know, the Naltar Valley in Pakistan. Now, you don't see greed in the mountain people in, um, you know, in northern India. Now, because they, they don't have enough materialistic wealth, or, or insight, or knowledge to be greedy. You know, they're there to share everything with everybody else because they're all about community. You know, they're all about family and friends. And somewhere as we developed into the developing nations, we've lost that. We've lost that ability to connect with our communities and our friends and our loved ones. We've we become disconnected. And that connection for me is, is put back in place on expeditions. And I feel way more connected there. Um, not necessarily on expeditions, but in these countries than I do at home. And it keeps me grounded. It's a reset. It keeps me humble, and, and it does make me question. You know, it questions what I see around here. It, it makes me question our um, what we consider to be the norm, um, our comfort levels, uh, our ability to turn a tap on, and we consider that a God-given right. But access to clean water and turning a tap on you know, most of the world's population don't have access to that. But we forget that because it becomes a norm. We get we got we get complacent to it. Um and expeditions it keeps that real. It really does. And I think that's really important. In the same way that we can learn from the outside and you know, by being outside and adventure, you know, we, we can learn from traveling to these places. Uh, and the most important thing is is that we bring those learnings back and we don't forget them. Uh, and that we stay grounded and humble and every time we turn a tap on we should marvel at the fact we've got clean water and we should marvel at the the fact we've got heat we should marvel at the fact we've got a roof above our heads Uh, and we've got enough food to eat because a lot of people don't yeah and i'm sure that we'll be criticized for saying this and somebody's oh yeah but you know you've done this you know you're you're selling out and i don't care but you know these, these are my own personal learnings you know and i bring them back and you know, I, I try to live my life to, to a modicum at least you know, by these values that, that are continually grounded by going on expedition by hanging out with some of these people that that don't have anything but are willing to share everything and, and, and that's powerful That that is powerful um, and I, I fight it when I come back because I don't want to just drop back into our greed society but it's almost impossible not to um so yeah, there's a constant pushback trying to reintegrate, but not reintegrate if that makes sense. I mean, I, th- I think you probably understand. You, you do enough expeditions yourself to far-flung places, and you probably go through the same uh, conflicted integration that happens when you come back.
2: Yeah, I mean, you've said it so well and so eloquently. I think the the way I always think about it is, or the way I try to explain it is, I'm in I'm in love with two things which are wholly incompatible, which is. My life with my family in the UK, with my comforts and my luxuries and my running water. And having a daughter has totally just amplified that. I want her to be comfy and warm and safe and happy. And I'm in love with the simple life, not just in expedition base camps, which is what it used to be for me. But now I've just come back from Wadi Rum, you know, eight days living not in a tourist camp, not in a hotel, but with the Bedouin. You know, and not just out in the desert in a token kind of gesture way for as in they didn't just take us out there to go and give us a Western experience. Mm. But having food with them in their homes sat on the floor talking about issues in the Middle East and I you know, I haven't worked it out yet. I've not been back long enough, but that one was a big one for me. I don't know, you know, it's like about are we coming back to the real world? Hell no. You know, maybe actually the real world is the one out there and I sometimes feel like I'm living in a disneyland fabrication actually <laughs> and i'm you know i'm i'm thirty three at my twenties I didn't really well i'm gonna get into the deep and heavy stuff, but I'm working it all out you know i want i want to grow my own food i want i want my kids to cycle to school you know i don't want to i don't want a fucking supercar i just i want to have it's so difficult we talked about it a bit yesterday. I want my kids to have access to a brilliant health service whenever they get injured or need some penicillin. But equally, I want them to live in the dirt with as little as possible. And I'm a hypocrite, and I don't know how to work it out, and I don't have a good answer yet.
1: Yeah, and I'm with you, and I'm, I'm like 48 now? Um, so was that, 15 years older than you? And I'm still on that journey, um, and I haven't found out. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, when I'm not guiding big mountains, I, I do a lot of corporate speaking, in fact. You know, we've just launched our own company uh, and it's all about sort of performance coaching uh, in core company and i struggle sometimes going into organizations you know talking about leadership or talking about performance because you know a lot of time i just think well you know high altitude mountaineering for instance you know it, it requires true leadership you know, because if you get it wrong someone's going to goddamn die and you go into the corporate world uh or the corporate environment and it is almost impossible to replicate that that level of exposure, that that level of understanding, because people haven't really experienced it. And it's the same thing when you come back from expeditions. You come back from an expedition and you've experienced. It, well, I don't know. Is it the real world? Or is it? I mean, I I, I think you bring that back to this you know this fairy tale life in the same way that you know the corporate environment is this kind of fairy tale life. You know, is is it real or is it? make believe and you try to bring these learnings back on both and you know on one aspect i'm doing that in my own life on the other aspect i'm doing it on a, on a professional level and yeah, you know, I, I i i i'm conflicted on both of them um yeah you know, and the more coaching i do and the more sort of I've, I've been you know coaching leadership for for years and years and years and the number of times i'm perhaps sat there in a you know, in, a, in, a, in a boardroom or I'm, I'm delivering a keynote and I'm just looking around just thinking this isn't the real world you know they, they, they don't they, they're not connecting with necessarily what I'm saying or teaching because there hasn't been a level of exposure and I think it's good that the likes of you and I experience these things and we struggle with it and we bring it back with us because all of a sudden your daughter is going to grow up with an understanding because you're going to tell her the stories or, you know, she's going to be touched by by your own struggles. Um, and hopefully that will pique her interest in the same way that, you know, I, I tried to inform my children. I mean, we got out to, to Kathmandu and to the Kumbu region as a family last year. You know, I broke them out through lockdown. It's amazing how many people got online and the keyboard warriors were saying, "Yeah, oh, know, yeah, it's all illegal, it's it all great for Kensington, you know, whatever. So, you know, as exposing the children to a level of not suffering, but you know, they hadn't seen real poverty before. Now we live in the Cotswolds, now, and all of a sudden we're just walking the streets of Kathmandu. And let's face it, you know, Kathmandu is not not totally out there, is it? But they're walking the streets and they're looking at these children on the streets, and they're going, "Daddy, you know, now look at that little boy or look at that little girl. You know, what are they doing?" I'm like, "Well, that, that's where they live. You know, but but where's the house?" I'm like, there is the gutter that piece of cardboard and it just blows their minds you know and and that you know is it wrong that my children go to a little prep school around the corner and live in a, in a beautiful part of the world no it's not wrong but at the same time i think it's really important to educate and maybe the likes of you and i and our children will ever be conflicted and hopefully so because by being conflicted that's going to you know, start a discussion, a dialogue within themselves about what's right and what's wrong. And they can find their own, their own path, their own journey. They can make their own decisions, or well, not decisions, but they can draw their own conclusions from the journey that that, that they're on. But it's only through exposure. And, and that's one of the great things about adventure, because adventure gives us that exposure level. It allows us to understand that there are different ways of life uh, and there are different hardships that the majority of the world's population have to go through because we live in a cotton wool society and um, I'm not convinced it's right.
2: No, me neither. No, and it's interesting. I mean, I'm working this out live chatting to you, which is why I absolutely love doing this. But, um, and I wasn't expecting to get into this sort of territory, but as in the territory we've just been in, but, you know, maybe selling out actually, maybe the definition should be around not what you gain, but what you do with what you've gained And if the plan is to educate our children, raise awareness, change the way that we live and see the world and think about it, you know, are we adding more than we're taking away? I would say that's a better measure of selling out than whether or not we get paid to do the thing we love.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic conclusion, Matt. Um, Yeah, I get talked a lot about legacy and leaving legacy and things like that. And I mean, I've got no real ambition to leave legacy other than to, you know, the biggest impact that I'm ever going to have on this planet is having children. And you know, children never asked to be born. We bring them into the world. That's our decision. So I think if, if it's going to be a legacy, it's going to be leaving our children educated on their ability to draw their own conclusions and to give them the grounding whereby they can do that and that they... You know, they're they net. They're not even givers, is it? Um, yeah, I would say. We we do it. We're doing this sort of almost ad lib, aren't we? I'm, I'm struggling to think what the words are, but we've done a great job of screwing our planet. At least my generation have. Um, and you know, our ability to affect change now is minimal, other than through education of the future generations. And I think any legacy that we that, that we do leave has to be focused on that because the future generations, your daughter, my children, their children, they hold our very future in their hands. They are the game changers, not us anymore. You know, not our parliament or our government. It was, you know, in my mind, are single-handedly trying to ruin everything, uh, certainly environmentally. Uh, just look at the policies of the Conservatives. I mean, my God, I mean, how short-sighted. Yeah, and we need to educate the next generation so that they can uh, affect change. Because, you know, we're... we're we're heading down a one-way street and we're heading down it pretty damn quickly.
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, but then we do, as you say, you know, it's our lives aren't over and we've, we've got to educate our children. And then um, I asked a Leo holding, put it really well. I asked him in base camp in Guyana, you know, you've lost so many friends and you've got kids now and what we're doing is very dangerous. How do you justify it? How do you justify the risk? Which is a cliche question to ask, but I loved his answer, which was it is who he is and it is what he does. And he wants, he can't imagine seeing his children, Watch him be a shell of a person he was. He wants to see them. He wants he wants them to see him living with a passion and a ferocity that inspires them to do the same. Whether it's a love of ballet or saving elephants or working in the supermarket, he wants them to live with that passion and that enthusiasm that they've seen him have. And I thought that'll do for me.
1: Well, one hundred percent. I mean, you are going to be successful. I mean, you know, we touched on what success means, but if you are going to be successful in any field. You've got to be passionate, you know, because if, if you're not invested in it, yeah, you know, you're never going to reach full potential. Mm-hmm. You know, you're never going to be high performing unless you are invested. And if yeah, if you take you know, take me out of climbing, or take Leo out of climbing, or take you out of a, you know, venture filmmaking, there's a reason why we we, we why we found these professions. You know because we're passionate about it. You know this you know, is this our calling? Is this is this is where we are meant to be. I mean, I I, I don't know but you know, I do know this I'm bloody passionate about what I what I do I like to think I'm good at it because I'm invested in it I like to give a, I like to think I give a bloody good service and the children see me doing that in the same way that Leo's children see him in the same way that your daughter will see you doing stuff they'll see your you'll see your results on the big screen you know anything you know daddy's done a really good job you know i want to do a good job in whatever it is that i do and that could be anything like you say it could be like saving the elephants it could be round the world yachts person you know hey I'm not, I'm not going to knock it you could be a bond trader now you're working finance but you know just be invested in it because otherwise you're wasting a very precious time on this planet
2: yeah right i have um i'm going to call it because i could do this for hours um we are going to bring it home I'm going to bring it home I have two questions I ask everyone at the end of every interview Um, oh god first one what scares you
1: traditionally I would always say failure Uh, and the reason why I would say that because uh, it was the fear of failing in the eyes of my peers but I've grown up since then so what scares me now um god you could have sent these in advance
2: (laughs) absolutely Uh, not
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, expect, I, expect, I mean, it doesn't keep me awake at night, but something bad happening to the children or the family, Yeah, you know, that 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 would be that would be bad. Yeah, and I do occasionally think about it. Um, yeah, what scares me? Uh, yeah, there's it's something bad happening to the family or close friends. Uh, I mean, being helpless to help somebody—that—that that, that, I can't think of anything worse than that. Um, seeing somebody close to you suffer. And not being able to do anything about it—that that that—that's that, that, probably about as bad as it gets, I think.
2: And what brings you hope? Oh,
1: lots of things bring me hope. Um, seeing the, the, the glee and joy in the family, uh, seeing the inquisitive nature of children, um, because you know we've already touched upon it. Now, they are our future. Uh, no, not just as a, a human sort of race, a species, but for the planet. You know they are our future, um, and to see children have that uninhibited, uh, inquisitive mind which hasn't yet been dulled by society is fantastic. And every time I see it, it just makes me hopeful that there is going to be a bright future, because I do get um, I do get concerned about what the future looks like on planet earth and to see that sparkle in children's eyes brings hope
2: amazing thank you so much we'll leave it there
1: fantastic thanks matt
2: thanks for listening for more information visit the or follow along on instagram at the adventure podcast podcast is hosted by matt pycroft and is produced by Ola O'Murray. if you want to get in touch then you can do so at info at the and please do leave us an honest review on itunes as the numbers help us reach a wide audience and we're genuinely interested in the feedback